Hello and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. This episode was recorded Wednesday, the day the music died, by which I mean the day that Bernie Sanders suspended his campaign. And I speak to media critic Adam Johnson. He's also the co-host of the podcast, Citations Needed. Then I speak to Tiffany Caban, public defender and former candidate for Queen CA. And then I have a bonus interview with writer Malika Jabali. So make sure after you hear the end of the radio show, you stick around for that chat with Malika Jabali. Hi, everyone. Hello, everyone. Can you believe how chipper I sound? Despite the announcement that we have to deal with. Um, I'm going to keep things really fast. This is the Katie Helper Show. You can listen to the Katie Helper Show every Wednesday at 4 p.m. on WBI. That's 99.5 FM or WBI.org. And uh, I'm keeping it fast. Hi, Reggie. Hi, everyone. Um, We got a guest who can only be with us for a little bit. So without any further delay, I'm presenting, bringing to talk to us, Adam Johnson, the uh, host, co-host of the Citations Needed podcast, uh, media media critic extraordinaire, and you can also find him at The Appeal. So, Adam, welcome. Hi, Katie. How are you doing? Uh, I've been better. Between uh, a lot of things going on, I've been better. Um, How are you? Uh, I'm 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 well, relatively speaking. Um, I guess I'm employed, so that's that's better than a lot of people can say. And you're healthy. Uh, I'm, I do not have the Rona as of yet, or at least not that I'm aware of. I suppose I don't know. Right. I guess it's kind of like a uh, uh, a Roninger's cat, if you will. You never quite know. Right. If, please punch me for that. Uh, yeah. You never quite know if but. you have it, uh, but I feel healthy, uh, and. Um, and God willing, we'll, uh, you know, not get it anytime soon. Inshallah. Um, also, because we're about to be uh, talking about a major announcement, I just want to uh, remind you, no cursing. Uh, okay? Yes. That's Thank probably you. more for me than for That's you. helpful. That's yes. helpful, right? So, Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Adam, this is Reggie, by so the how way. How people know I'm edgy? They won't know. Hi, Reggie. Oh, that rhymes. How, how will they know you're edgy once I introduce you to Reggie? Adam, just tell us the news, please. I can't say it. The news that that Bernie Sanders has officially suspended his campaign for for uh, for president. Yep. That news. Yep. Uh, so yeah, he he did. Um, uh, obviously, we saw this coming for some time now. Uh, this was pretty much a formality. I think it, it was pretty much clear after Super Tuesday that this was where this was going to end up, uh, which is good. You know, you want it to be a slow. It was sort of a slow descent, which is always better than a harsher, immediate one. Uh, it's probably good. It won't drag on for months. Uh, like it did in 2016, I, I don't think uh, I don't think that was very fruitful. Although I understood why it, why it did because it was a close race, uh, but this race was decided um, a month ago. Really? So he could have still gotten it. No, I mean it would have taken a lot no. of. I, I so, mean, so why do you think he dropped I mean, out the time the the moment he did? Man. Well, I mean the world changed. You know, two weeks, three weeks ago, right? <laughs> so yes. there was all these different factors. This has been a volatile race from the beginning. Um, things have shifted. It's just, it's just that, um, for whatever reason, a lot of the kind of electability psychology and tautology that that's pushed on people worked. Uh, Biden has generally high favorables. He's associated with, uh, an administration that still has very high favorables. Um, those things were hard to overcome. You know, Biden is uniquely, was, I think, uniquely positioned to, unlike everyone else to beat Sanders, because he did well in the demographics. He did well and he held his own with Latinos. He won. Uh, poor uh, white men, which Bernie did well with, and Biden does better with now. Um, so it was never the demographics; just the math was never there after uh, the party elites coalesced around Biden and CNN and, and, and MSNBC ran uh, effectively ran a, a seventy-two hour Biden infomercial um, leading up to Super Tuesday. 
um, between South Carolina and Super Tuesday, which is really where the part where, where the, the the whole election was decided that weekend, um, that Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. Um, and there was no way that that you can really get over that. I mean, and of course, Biden was handled with kid gloves when it came to um, his, his 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 speech issues and and uh, sexual harassment and assault allegations uh, that I don't think would have been afforded to Sanders. Um, whether or not it would, it's fair to bring those up with Biden is a separate question, but I don't think the stand, I think it's fair to assume that none of this, none of this generous media coverage would have been afforded to, to Sanders. So those, all, all that things combined. Um, and of course, Sanders himself, I'm sure you can, we can sort of go back and debate what the campaign did wrong vis-a-vis African-American support in the South, uh, which was pretty dispositive, at least from a narrative perspective. Um, all we want. So I don't know. Uh, but of course, the, 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 it wasn't just that. It's also Biden was 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 uh, beating Sanders with with uh, white voters that he had won last time. Uh, again, different reasons why that is. It's mostly because Biden is associated the most popular Democrat in the world, which is Barack Obama. Yeah, and that's you know that's hard. That's hard to beat. Um, Clinton never really had that association, and indeed, in many ways, was seen as being adversarial to right. Obama. And you, you tweeted today, it's kind of pat, but I think what went wrong takes are mostly people just projecting pre-existing naval gazy grievances onto a campaign around the margins. These things matter, but it was always 90% a media that is systematically hostile to anything left of the New York Times editorial page. So that's, uh, that's the big takeaway, right? That it was the media. Well, I mean, again, I, I fully acknowledge that this is very pat and this kind of in some ways is pandering a little bit, right? But I, I really think that the way I view this stuff, and I had the same response when Corbyn lost, is I, I think having a, a critical analysis of what the campaign did wrong is perfectly fine. But if you're not contextualizing that right. and, and what the tremendous forces are for an insurgent campaign that's hostile to the Democratic Party elite and the corporate media and speaks about them in those terms, if your solution, which in 90 Five percent. I'm pulling these numbers out of my ass. Or sorry, my butt. Sorry. That's okay. um, but ninety-five percent of these takes are basically just Bernie Sanders should have been more like Elizabeth Warren, which right. is to say that more Native American. Have, you mean? Well, they should have kissed the ring, etc. But the problem with that is that Elizabeth Warren finished third in her in her home state. So I'm not sure how that works either. Um, and and basically, I really think it's people who have pre-existing grievances projecting those 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 kind of analysis. And I, and the way I view this, and the way I, again, the way I viewed it after Corbyn is, I really think that electoral leftism, which I want to be clear, is not the totality of leftism. There are plenty of uh, people who wake up every day who have nothing to do with the Sanders campaign, uh, with different tendencies, um, you know, uh, abolitionists, anarchists, socialists, etc., who are who are not part of the electoral system, who wake up every single day and go do all the hard work uh, in their communities, uh, prisons, etc. Um, but if you're in the, with the specific focus on electoralism, um, and I do think the kind of broader, uh, left as it were, both electoral and non-electoral is to me, the take home is that we, we need to do a, I think the most constructive way of doing this is to talk about, and this is going to sound a little lofty, but indulge me hmm. is, is building alternative narratives and media and cultural products. So much of what Sanders came up against and other and other um, Dem socks who were running the future will come up against. That's Democratic is, Socialist for listeners. Uh-huh. Sorry, is these kind of tropes that you have to spend all your time unpacking. So, for example, how are you going to pay for it? 
um, electability, these these kind of zombie concepts that are very difficult to unpack in a right. soundbite-driven media that I think we need to think hard and deep about what are ways we can un, we can create popular... Um, this is, by the way, what the right wing did in the late 70s when they, when they effectively all the far right and, and billionaires got together and decided they were going to fund an entire ecosystem of think tanks mm. um, to, to do this. And, not, and of course, they have an advantage because they have the money. I'm not suggesting right. that the, the left or whatever can do the same thing because they just don't have the resources. Right. But I do think we need to think critically about about how we can start to deconstruct. And this, is, of course, is what we try to do on our show. And, and, and I know that you try to do often. How do you sort of deconstruct the the mentality that makes offering people basic social democracy so difficult in this scenario. Yeah. Now, you obviously have tremendous barriers with corporate media. You have tremendous barriers with um, editorial pages. Um, but th- thinking of ways of deconstructing that and coming up with counter narratives. And I, and I think, quite frankly, um, there needs to be more cultural products. There needs to be more left-wing film and television. Yeah, and, definitely. And there really isn't any because so much of that, and this again, this may seem a little bit lofty compared to what, um, well, how most people are addressing this now, but I think without that approach, um, I don't think there's, it, it, it's, it's, it's going to be almost virtually impossible to yeah. really ever win on a massive scale to build mass movements because the deck is so stacked against right. you. So we now. need propaganda, and effective propaganda. You need effective propaganda. And I think that, um, you know, I mean, Bernie Sanders was a once in a lifetime politician. Yeah. I mean, this is a guy whose approval ratings in Vermont were Saddam Hussein numbers. Um, and, and they did the same re- thing to him. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I think this is a little more organic. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but the point is that he like, um, you know, this was someone who like was in the 90, 80s percentile, you know, sort of very popular right. uh, appeal to moderates and this and that obviously had a benefit of being a white male or not or perceived as being a white male um, right. that other candidates didn't have uh, for 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 worse. But, um, and, you know, and this, so so this was a perfect storm of things that came together. And there was still this just this in super there was all this insuperable uh, mechanisms in place. Um which is again, which is not to say that the, the campaign itself did not is not responsible. Ultimately, it has to be. But I, I do think one is deluding themselves to think that if only people were nicer on Twitter or yeah, right. I, I think this is this is kind of and again, I know it's pat and I, and I know it's somewhat self-serving, but I, I really do believe it that I think that we the, the, these are ultimately not very knowable things, whereas I feel like a constructive um, sit back, look at the 30,000 feet about the way people perceive the unions, the way people perceive uh, climate change, the way that people perceive the, the sort of debt fetishism about how are you going to pay for it. All these things are massive barriers to meaningful progressive politics. Right. And I think until you really sit back and think about ways um, you can deconstruct those things, you're never really going to. And, and by the way, people in prison abolition and prison reform have come up against this a lot. I, I work at the appeal and you see this all the time with like, how do you get people to understand the, the moral stakes of prison? Well, okay, for years, all we had was law and order, cops, right. cops, law and order, law and order, cops, cops, and cops. And then so the first actual real cultural product, at least that I've seen, um, that gave a sense of what the stakes, moral stakes were in prison was a show like When They See Us or when mm. or when or Netflix is 13, where it's the first Absolutely. thing really, yeah. and then these things become shorthand and you, then you start to sort of erode the culture around that. And now you have um, people like, uh, you know, Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren and you sort of mainstream Democrats coming out and demanding people get released from prison. Right. Um, and I think that that's not something you would have seen. Uh, you would have seen three, four years ago. And I do think now that had some money behind it. There are reasons why that is. But 
I think that things like uh, media analysis, cultural criticism, uh, culture itself, media products, knowledge products, uh, I, God forbid, I mean, even sort of crowdsource funded think tanks, I think right. are are really the thing we should be talking about now, not not projecting our own grievances onto onto the what our sort of pre-existing grievances are. Um, and people would say, well, that was your, you know, your pre-existing thing was media narratives. Right. Um, which is true, uh, of course, because that's what I do for a living. Right. Um, but I, but I, but I think it's, it's pre-existing for a reason because we all knew going into this, and this is kind of an axiom of left-wing politics that, that this, that the media is going to rig things against you. Um, because that's the, the primary social function of, of media. And if one doesn't believe that the media is out to get left-wing candidates, then I, I would assume one is not really left-wing to begin with, since it's kind of a, an axiom of of class analysis um, that the media the media does not exist uh, separate from class interests and why uh i don't know how much time you have left adam do you have to i got a couple more minutes okay why does sorry hollywood i just got it it's very hollywood yeah uh why does the media hate sanders what are the concrete i mean we spend i spend so much time on on my shows and in my writing um kind of tracing the media biases or documenting them but why do they hate him why does a newspaper owned by the first and second richest person in the world, yes. which is Bezos and Carlos Slim, the Washington Post, the New York Times, why do they hate someone who wants to who speaks openly in class war terms? Yeah, um, even if superficially. I mean, I don't know. One can sort of venture to guess. Right. Okay. So it's- why does why why does why why does a, a a dog hate cats? Why do cats hate mice? I mean, it's it seems rather obvious to me. But and like MSNBC people, why do they hate him? Is it also just a direct tax issue is it i mean what is i mean the- it's comcast i mean i don't know they're corporations the corporations right. are inherently reactionary ideologically speaking right they, of course so it's not necessarily i mean do you think it's in general obviously there are exceptions, or- but in, i mean i don't know 90 seconds i can't really get into no, the, into the eco- ecology of corporate media but suffice to say that um you want to you want to put blame on anyone in particular and your suffice to say that these, these things are extremely documentable right um, well i know there's been yeah um sorry do you want to into the uh, you want to name any people you want to blame any any targets you want to yeah I think specifically it was on? it was I think specifically it was Bernie uh, Bernie stands sixty nine four twenty who yeah. who tweeted a snake emoji I think right. they're definitely to blame and forced uh, Elizabeth um, Warren to to uh, not oppose yeah. Joe Biden anymore yeah yeah this is definitely a, a plausible re- reading of events that yeah. definitely doesn't just get everyone off the hook. Yeah. Um, yeah. Look, I think that um, internally there are things we can sort of debate that should or should not have happened, a, a, a sort of tone or approach, I suppose. But ultimately, I think those things are cosmetic compared to the broader issues of like, how do you how do you um, push back against um, a, a kind of conservative and right wing media apparatus that has exists in this country way more than other countries? I mean, you can do A-B tests on how modest democratic uh, uh, social democratic policies are received in certain countries versus others um and it's very endemic in our culture and it's very difficult to deconstruct yeah um all right well adam any pi- final words i don't want to keep you i know you're very hollywood you have that's it. meetings that's it all right yep. and uh all right thank you so much adam johnson where can people find you on twitter adam johnson nyc uh your podcast citations needed where else that's it okay that's it awesome all right thank you so much adam all johnson right. Bye. Come back soon. And really excited to be joined once again by Tiffany Caban, who is a uh, raging against the machine, former Queens DA candidate, currently working for working families, always public defender, um, queer Latina decarceral. 
So, uh, and India, anything else that I'm leaving out from this Renaissance woman of, of criminal justice? Bio? <laughs> What's going on, Katie? How Thanks are you? I, I'm all right. I think you hit it all, though. Okay, proud, great. proud dog mom. Like, that's proud probably dog mom. Yes. Okay, cool. I'm a dog sister. My parents have a dog, so I'm a dog older sister. Um, how are you? Hanging in, yeah. you know, like thankful for my health, obviously, but um, it's it's an adjustment, and like Queens is is kind of becoming the epicenter of it all, so it's it's um it's hard. Yeah. Well, yeah. What are you working on now? Um, because we had you on before your DA race, and uh, which you I I still consider you the the Queens DA. Um, <laughs> uh, but, but what what are you up to now? Since you so uh, I am. Well, a, a lot of things, but like primarily I am a, a national political organizer with the Working Families Party. And it was um, just like the 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 perfectly timed opportunity after after my race, um, after not just the primary, but the recount and the oh, lawsuit. Right. I like just didn't know what to do with myself. I knew I wanted to keep working and moving. And so I had like flown myself out to go support Chase Boudin, who is now the, the DA in San Francisco, yes. which is incredible so exciting, yeah. um, and is doing incredible things. Uh, and, you know, when I came back, I connected with uh, Maurice Mitchell, the head of the Working Families Party. And, um, you know, they're building out this beautiful, beautiful criminal justice program. And so now I feel like I've gotten the opportunity to take my platform, our campaign, our organizing model and scale it nationally because we are working across the board to elect decarceral DAs um, across the country. So we worked on Chase's campaign. Um, we worked very hard on Kim Fox's reelection, as well as Jose Garza in Austin, who's set to, he's on his way to winning. He won the popular vote. They've got a run out out there. Um, so we're continuing to make sure we get him over the finish line. And, and now just really organizing with my comrades and community members around how, how do we get, how do we get folks out of jail right now? Yeah. And we're going to talk about more, that more. Um, I just wanted to uh, ask you as someone who is an insurgent candidate who came very close to winning, um, how do you deal with? What's your um, advice for those of us who are dealing with the sad news about oh. Sanders suspending his campaign? You know, it is a really um, sad and hard day, but I think that we have a lot uh, to be proud of. I mean, the that message of like "not me, us" is yeah. couldn't be more important than than this moment. Um, but I've said it about my race, and I will say it about um, the, the Sanders campaign is like. You know, as hard as it is, even when we lose, we win. And we won on a lot of the issues. I think what we're building is very, very powerful and we're going to continue to grow it. And to know that, you know, it doesn't stop with just the presidential, like the the infrastructure of that campaign. We are people that are organizing around so many th different things. And now it's about focusing on building that bench, right? So that we can eventually have that kind of success on the presidential scale. But we need it at every every level of our government to create the kind of political will, will we need to get that kind of power. Yeah. Where were you when you found out? How did you respond? Oh, gosh. Um, so I actually was on a I found out of like, I guess a few minutes late, really, because I was on a, a conference work call. You yeah. know, the, the the campaign work does not stop. Right. Um, and it was just sort of I mean, it was just sort of devastated by it. But, you know, I think it's also really, really important that we make it clear that um, the progressive vote has to be earned. Yeah. And that means adopting a lot of, you know, Medicare for all and a Green New Deal and all of these things that are, are really, really important. But then also took a minute to, again, be thankful. Uh, like, I am super grateful for, you know, 
Bernie Sanders, his decades and decades of work fighting for people on the margins and for like being consistent and like a point of, of very clear moral clarity, essentially. Right. And so, um, you know, just taking a moment to also be grateful for that as well. Yeah. I was taping my other podcast, Useful Idiots, that I did with Matt Taibbi, and I saw a text while we were taping it, and I just, so now I'm like caught on video and on audio kind of being stunned. It's more stunned, I guess I, I, I'm more, I feel more numb, kind of. I wasn't that mm-hmm. surprised, but I, for some reason I thought that, yeah, I thought there'd be more of a hint that it was happening. I mean, I saw him and his, and his great, like, surrogates and, uh, great press secretary Brianna Joy Gray just last night doing a roundtable about how yep. COVID-19 is affecting black people in particular. Um, so, and that's a great transition I want to ask you about. What are you working on now uh, with COVID-19 and how that's intersecting with criminal justice issues? And is this a, this is both, it seems like a crisis and maybe an opportunity? Yeah, I, I mean, I think by definition, every crisis is an opportunity because at its root, it is um, a, a turning point. And it is historically the moment where we have the most, the best opportunity to radicalize on either side, right? And so like it is for, you know, it is incumbent upon us as the left to take advantage of this moment um, because, you know, it's it's incredible to see all of the things that like directly impacted and working class folks have been saying and and demanding and begging for. And now all of a sudden we've been told for so long we can't have it and the government is giving it to us. Right. And to make sure that this isn't like a, a one off, a one stop, but saying, hey, like this is more reflective of of the faults of our government infrastructure in general, the fact that we don't have so, you know, social safety nets and all of these different things. Um, so we needed to take advantage of, of this moment for sure. And then, you know, a lot of the, the work has been making sure that we are centering the people that are too often left behind. Um, you know, as if, if New York city and then Queens is the epicenter of the, the COVID pandemic in the United States, Rikers Island certainly is like, at the, the very, very center of it. I mean, we're talking about infection rates that are, are you know, 70 times what it is around the country and certainly seven to, to nine times what it, it is in the city. Um, and, you know, this is our prison industrial complex has always been uh, a public health crisis. Uh, but like it, it is just that much easier and, and so much more clear for folks who maybe necessarily don't really touch the system or haven't been as aware to, to see that now as well. Right. And there's a lot that's not being done. Yeah. And what are you, um, how, what's the, what is decarceral justice? I mean, you talked about this a little bit on the last show and, um, I just think it's really important for listeners to understand and how, what, what can be done now with that? I mean, we see people trying to, um, let people uh, to decarcerate people because of the infection rates. Um, where, what's happening at different locations uh, around the country? I saw Larry Krasner talk about this, but. Yes, absolutely. So, I, I mean, just to frame it in terms of decarceral um, uh, prosecution de- de- and decarceral politics in general, is that like we should be moving towards um, being motivated by just the best public health and public safety outcomes, and so that in in effect means shrinking right. our carceral system, shrinking our urge uh, to to punish rather than to provide supports, change behavior, and actually in- have better, safer healthier outcomes. Um, and so what we're seeing around the country around COVID in, in jails and prisons is that this isn't a one-off that's happening in cities or like this is happening everywhere. 
people are acting and it's not just Larry Krasner and Chase and, and I do want to talk about them specifically but you have in places like Montana, LA, Hawaii, New Jersey all retaining um, folks who are incarcerated understanding that it is the best way to save lives you know it, certainly being incarcerated should not un, under any means be a, a potential death sentence right. Uh, especially, I mean, and not anywhere, right? Like, I, I am, you know, anti-death penalty, anti-death yeah. by incarceration, right. like, like all of it. Uh, but here, particularly, it's it's particularly shameful in New York because we don't have the death penalty right. specifically because we have decided collectively that that is cruel and unusual punishment. And so, to see people on Rikers Island who are pre-trial detainees, people who are there because they cannot afford their, their bail, um, people who are there because of technical violations of parole, have not committed crimes, people who are there for serving sentences for low-level offenses, right, for misdemeanors. Every single person sitting on that island is exposed to a death penalty. And we don't we don't accept that or demand that even of the most heinous crimes right. here in New York. Right. So just putting that framing on it. But you know, I think part of the failure of of our response here in New York is the way that we view the function of our, our systems. Right. And the the other side of that is a Chase Boudin or Larry Krasner or Rachel Rollins. Like they are people who are very rooted and grounded in in uh, centering public health and, and public safety. So they were able to move very quickly into decarcerating because their mindset is already if it saves lives, it's worth doing, and we can right. act fast. Right. And we know what kinds of supports we need. Um, whereas we have the opposite approach. And so we react to things with with the police or um, with more surveillance, state surveillance or state control or punishment. And those things aren't going to get us the results that we need. And we're moving way too quickly, to, way too slowly to the point where, it, I mean, I honestly think it's, it's we're too late. We were we were too late a long time ago. Um, so we really, really need to be doing a lot more. And it's also laying every, it's it's also laying everything bare. Right, it's unmasking everything. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I thought was wild was uh, our, our police commissioner saying, we've got 3000 people calling out sick, but don't worry, we can still fully staff our ships. And immediately I think to myself, well, if. We, you can fully staff your shifts with 3,000 officers out. Maybe we shouldn't have had all of those officers to begin with right. because we don't have safe staffing in our hospitals. We don't have enough nurses. We don't have enough doctors. We don't have enough teachers in our in our schools. Um, and, like, that is exactly the problem. Right. Yeah. Well, and what do you say to people? Um, I mean, because one of the interesting things is that uh, decarceral justice isn't just something that people like you and me politically find appealing. I mean, it's it's one of these things that I think just rational people who don't have a particularly progressive worldview, but understand that incarcerating people does not have good effects. Like even if you don't care about about people who who the incarcerated people, even if you just have a public safety, you can be conservative, yep. whatever, but they just look at the empirical data and see that it's not actually helpful. Um, but at the same time, uh, it is a very easy talking point to make the, you know, uh, how can you let people out of jail? They're going to go around and murder people or rob people. So what's your response to that kind of fear mongering? That is very, uh, a common trope. Yeah. The fact of the matter is that 97% of people 
who end up in a jail cell will re-enter their communities at some point. And our system is not set up to make sure that harm doesn't continue, right? So there's a failure on that end already. But also looking at what actually produces safety and what gives us better outcomes. So we know that when people have a place to lay their head down at night, when they have access to healthcare, um, when they have access to harm reduction services, mental health services, it is the best way to keep people safe and from harming. The other thing too, is that our system doesn't really provide justice for survivors, right? Um, And we have created this false kind of dichotomy where survivors are given two options. Either they can do nothing, right? Uh, Or the person who harmed them can end up in a jail cell. And it's a really complex thing because within communities, and you know this when you mm. when you practice important things, like it, the intersection is very real. One day you are the defendant in a case, one day you are the witness, one day that you are the victim and survivor. There are a lot of relationships and community ties at play. And if you ask a survivor or a victim overwhelmingly, when given the choice, a third option, right? The thing that they really want above all else is to make sure that they are made whole and they're not hurt again. And other people aren't hurt in the same way. And so when given the option to have the resources to actually support people who hurt because hurt people hurt people, Mm. um, not only are the outcomes better, uh, but, you know, again, we're not we're we can engage in an accountability process that also doesn't strip people of their dignity and their humanity and and gives them the opportunity to be able to heal and and be able to function in um, in our communities in, in ways that are less harmful. Yeah. And that's restorative justice or. Yes, absolutely. Justice. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, a great model for this um, is uh, Danielle Sered's program, Common Justice. I mean, they work exclusively with um, folks who commit violent offenses against others. And it's incredible. They have uh, over a 90 percent participation rate. It's up to the the person who's been hurt, right, the survivor of the victim to decide whether they want to participate in this thing. Um, And they choose it. Because the outcomes are what's more important. They want to make sure that that they're not hurt again and other people aren't hurt again. And it's a really transformative experience for everybody involved. And the recidivism rate is something like less than 5%. So it works. That's the other thing. Like these things work. Right. Which is why you have libertarians often supporting it. You know, people who don't have a very human. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. But um, so... Uh, I want to ask you about someone who's receiving a lot of attention, and I think it's mostly because he's not Trump and he's decisive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm talking about none other than Andrew Cuomo, uh, yeah. who's being kind of praised as a hero. And people are thinking about him if, you know, if and when Joe Biden, whatever, I don't want to, many things could happen with Joe Biden. But people are keep talking about him as a potential draftee for the um, nomination, you know, the Democratic nomination. Um, what do you think about this guy? Is he the, uh, the champion that people describe him as? You know, it's really interesting how we sort of like uplift our mayors or our governors in times of crises. Um, and there wasn't a lot of attention actually on what was happening underneath. A lot of folks outside of New York didn't know that while he was 
keeping a level head in hand in in press briefings um, was also at the same time calling for major cuts to Medicaid and funding for our hospitals and and our schools and and how those things don't align, um, you know, the movement towards uh, the budget, I think, was it was devastating for a lot of us to see an unwillingness to tax ultra millionaires and billionaires to make sure that we could keep our hospitals open, be given care, or the fact that uh, our response has been what it has been because we didn't have the infrastructure in place. So I think it's really important to be critical of what came before um, and everything that else is that's happening and putting it all in context. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in my mind, I, I wrote an op-ed about this recently, but uh, our our governor and our legislature certainly failed the test of of moral clarity when they called for those cuts when they rolled back bail reform, um, knowing that bail reform was was saving lives. Um, yeah, I just <laughs> I, I don't. There's a part of me that almost has to chuckle at it so that I don't scream about it. Right. Um, it kind of reminds it, me of. Um, sorry, I cut you off. Yeah, no, no, no. It kind of reminds me of when Nancy Pelosi ripped up Donald Trump's speech. It's like performative. Um, And in this case, the performative part is just being, I guess, like doing his 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 uh, briefings and, you know, talking the talk and telling people he's black and Latina and queer and Jewish. I mean, that was funny, that little monologue um, where he identifies, you know, he multi-identifies, I guess. But... um, very problematic i know but like then hiding you know behind doing that and at the same time like it's you know like thomas frank has a book um listen liberal and he in that book he quotes someone who says it takes a liberal um meaning it takes a liberal in quotes to get certain things passed like it was easier for bill clinton to do nafta because he was a democrat um and we see this happening with a lot of like centrist dems and corporate dems and with um uh andrew cuomo and i mean can you Something I missed, and the media was talking about a little bit, but was the way that um, prisoners were inmates were making hand sanitizer that they Mm. weren't allowed to use themselves. Yes. How does that happen? How is that? And I I guess then the argument is like, oh, well, we're paying them something. But what's the response to that? I mean, first of all, it's 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 slave labor. We're talking about people making pennies an hour. Um, to access, to be making this thing that that we're using to, you know, keep our community safe, but that uh, people that are incarcerated don't have access to. You know, not only do they not have access to it, can't use it, but we're talking about people who can't engage in social distancing at all. My dogs just started barking. They're upset. No, it's okay. They're upset. They are speaking truth. Um, They're barking truth to justice. Yeah. But people who can't uh, socially distance that don't, they get one bar of soap to take showers. If they want to get other soap, they have to be able to buy it in the commissary. They don't have easy access to it um, and are not able to protect themselves. So it was particularly bad. Um, But if you want to speak for a second, I can quiet my dogs down. Are you going to be like, it's okay. Revolution is on the way. Don't yeah, worry. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna mute myself. Sure, okay. if you yeah, I'll talk. talk yeah, thanks. Yeah, you, they probably just heard the the news about Bernie. They're upset. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. my you know they have Bernie collars. Oh my God! Can we see them? Oh. Uh, I mean, I can. Sure. Try wait. Them. Um, yeah. Sure. Well, yeah, you, you can, can see them. Yeah, you can come. I'm gonna mute myself. Okay. Great. Um. So, uh, Reggie, how are you doing? Are you still there, Reggie? Obviously, you're there, right? Uh, yeah, I, I am still this here. This is yes. a fascinating. Uh, isn't this a good discussion? Oh my God! It is 
very it, it is a very interesting discussion and and, and it's very interesting that um Tiffany brought out the the uh, well you and Tiffany was mentioning about Cuomo and and the theatrics as you were saying about during his um his uh here uh his reports on COVID-19 in the state of New York where yeah he is giving uh numbers and statistics and stuff like that but what a lot of people don't understand that there was a budget that was finalized last week yeah. and there's a bunch of cuts that are happening that actually contradicts almost everything that Cuomo was talking about on air but no one knows about that right yeah yeah it's uh it's you know Trump's negligence just lets people uh seem so good just because again you can be decisive and you can do terrible things and people are comforted by it because trump was so he just dropped the ball so much it's a very low bar i know it's a very low bar and it's dangerous yeah. because then people do look like they're saviors and um i mean what i wanted to ask another question um i want to ask you about the elections that were happening the primaries how how are those how does when you're when you have primaries that are held during a pandemic and you are obviously putting certain populations at more risk than others like immunocompromised people or older people is that a voting rights issue is that a disenfranchisement issue i i mean absolutely first of all i to add to sort of how hard this morning has been was yeah. It coming off of Wisconsin right. and seeing one the the low turnout. I, I think in one of the counties the turnout was like three percent or something like that. Like how we can call this a legitimate um, election in these times is I, I don't know how we do that. But beyond that, then asking and calling for people to risk their lives um, to go out and exercise their right to, to vote is just sort of horrific. Um, you know, again. All, we've been saying we've said this over and over over the course of the program, but just laying bare all of the problems with our democracy, why we don't make it easier to to vote, why we don't have you know automatic voter, why everybody can't vote, all of these different things, um, and it's it's actually really challenging for the left and particularly like grassroots insurgents because the way that we win is we out organize, right? Like we get boots on the ground. Yeah. And so this has been a time where we all have collectively been coming together and saying, okay, like we have, how do we change our strategies to reach people? Um, but also I've been really, really, uh, like it's been amazing to see where our folks' priorities are because what we're seeing, and we saw Bernie Sanders modeled this as well, is that what we're seeing is that we're taking our campaigns and we're turning them into mutual aid networks, right? We are going out and seeing how we can use those same tools to help our neighbors to make sure that they're safe. And then taking the opportunity and saying like, well, this is how we got here. And what are the things that you need? Well, we have candidates out there that want to champion those things. So do you have them not just today when you're in crisis, but all the time, because this could happen again. Yeah, I mean, I was really shocked by how, um, you know, I'm someone who, like you, I think, sees there that there are way too many uh, similarities between the Republicans and Democrats. But I have to say, when Tom Perez and Simone Sanders, who's no relationship to Sanders, except same last name, but Biden's senior advisor, Simone Sanders, when she not only urged people to vote, but said that the CDC had said it was safe for vote for folks to vote, while 
after um, Chris Cuomo literally said the CDC says it's not safe to have more than 50 people together, and she said they've said it's safe. Watching that and watching Tom Perez urge governors not to postpone the elections was so disgusting. And I felt very naive, but I kind of was like, I really didn't think the Dems would do this. Like, I thought this was something the Dems yeah. would be like, okay, we're the party of science and medicine and, you know, we're corporate hawks, but they're, we have some standards. And when they did that, I just was disgusted and I couldn't believe it. Well, and and always, you know, the the always it is uh, black and brown working class communities that bear the brunt of it. Because when you talk about who's got to go the far this to get to their polling station, who has the least amount of machines, who's more likely to have to wait in a line um, for hours to be able to vote. It's, it's our black and brown and, and low income and working class communities. And so I think, you know, it's just, it adds to the, the disenfranchisement um, of the same people who have historically been disenfranchised. So again, just so just disturbing. continuing to lay bare all of the problems they here. They should be all declared illegitimate, all of them. And then we should have a do-over, a mail-in do-over, and, and Amo Bernie will win. Um, Reggie, can we, <laughs> right? Um, Reggie, can we He's take... Theo Bernie. To Theo me. Bernie, I know. To me, he'd be, I don't even know how to say uncle in Yiddish. I'll find out. But um, but Tiffany, um, we only have a few more minutes. Um, do you, what, anything that you want to talk about? Um I mean, I can ask you more questions, of course, but I just want to know if there's anything that's on your mind that you want to make sure we address. Um, you know, I just, I guess I would just say, I would love to take the time to encourage folks to to join their local mutual aid networks. We have one in Queens. There's one in, in basically every neighborhood that you can kind of get linked into. Uh, and just like, if you want to get in on this fight of trying to decarcerate and bring people home because they are sitting ducks in our jails right now, um, you know there are our community bail funds that are raising money to to bail people out. Check those out and put pressure on like the mayor to to put pressure on the police to to make changes to how we're policing and engaging with the community. To call up Governor Cuomo's office and say, hey, use your power to grant uh, clemencies and commutations because he can do that with with you know the stroke of a pen. Um, a lot of people don't know that he made the commitment to release people who are uh, jailed on technical violations, over 600 people, and only 200 have been released. So we need to keep that pressure on. So call up Governor Cuomo, ask for those releases, and you know, don't let up and, and just check on your neighbors. I don't, yeah. I don't know if there's anything else you want to talk about, but check oh, yeah. on your neighbors. We had on Dean Spade last week who talked about um, uh, mutual aid, and that's really yeah how important it is now, now more than ever. Um, yeah, I mean, can we prosecute Tom Perez and um, and uh, Joe Biden maybe for uh, endangering people? Oh, you know, federal uh, federal laws is not my specialty. Yeah. You have to you have to find another lawyer for that. All right, we'll have to do that. Yeah. And are you practicing now? Or are you representing clients? Or are you focusing on organizing? Uh I am focusing on organizing. I'm uh, not not representing clients right now. Uh, it's something that, you know, I always say what's nice is that it allows me to move the way that I do because I love the work so much that I'm like, man, no matter what, I can be completely unapologetic because worst case scenario, I get to go back to, to representing my clients right. every day. Right. Um, do you miss it? Yes. Yeah. Every day. Yeah. I, and, and, you know, my, my public defender friends are, are my family. You know, yeah. we talk all, all the time and um, I miss it. I yeah. miss the connection. You know, you, you build very intimate connections and it's a different way of being in the fight. 
Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I guess, uh, any, let's see, I'm trying to think of anything else, any other encouragement, like as someone again, who came so close and was so important and shifted the, the Overton window, um, what, what advice do you have for people to how they can kind of keep their heads up, um, at this time? Just to reiterate that, like, even when you have losses, you win. I think about the fact that, yes, we came up very, very shy with the vote, but we did some incredible things. I look at the organizing table here in Queens, and it looks different now, right? I mean, we built a really, really diverse coalition that connected, you know, upper middle class moms with sex workers yeah. and formerly incarcerated folks and like being in struggle together and fighting for the same things. And these folks, they're still, they're still in relationship with one another, they're still talking. And th those are really important things to be doing. And then just to see how we have been able to, t to take it to the national, yeah. you know, talking about decrim on, on a, a national level presidential candidates, right. um, seeing more decarceral prosecutors get elected. So yeah. You know, the work continues. Great. Well, thank you so much. Just what we needed. Uh, Tiffany Caban, thank you for joining us. Former DA uh, uh, candidate for Queens DA, very inspiring um, organizer, activist, uh, public defender. And uh, you're listening to the Katie Helper Show. Thank you for listening to the Katie Helper Show. You can hear the Katie Helper Show every Wednesday at 4 p.m. on WBI or 99.5 FM or WBI.org on the Internet. And your Twitter handle is? Um, uh, Tiffany under, what is that? Underscore? Under, underscore Caban. Okay, Tiffany underscore Caban. Bye, everyone. See you next week. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Really excited to be joined by writer and uh, lawyer and activist, Malika Jabali. Welcome. Hi, Katie. How are Hi. you? Meh, you know, a bit down. Yeah. Um, but uh, how are you? You know, lots of things going on in the world. Yeah. Just want to make it. Yeah. Where were you when you heard uh, that Bernie Sanders was suspending his campaign? Home. Yeah. Surprise, right. surprise. I, mean, I guess I meant what were you doing yeah. In a meeting. I was taping my uh, other podcasts and I think I ruined the whole thing. I was like numb kind of. I feel like I gained like 15 pounds over the last five minutes. Just binge eating a bunch of challah appropriately enough. Yeah. Yeah, I like um, it. Yeah, it's so good. But I was like, this is so, what a metaphor. Um, you're in Brooklyn? I am. Hunkered down in Brooklyn. Well, I want to have, I keep, I've been wanting to have you on for many reasons, but I especially wanted to have you on because of the Wisconsin vote, because you wrote this really wonderful piece um, called The Color of Economic Anxiety at Current Affairs, one of the places you contribute to. You also write for places like The Guardian. The Guardian, Current Affairs. I want to make sure I get all the... You won a... No, you won a... A journalism. Yes. Uh, the New York Association of Black Journalists. Uh, yeah. So, uh, and that was for that uh, article. For, yeah, for The Color of Economic yeah. Anxiety. And, your, and you made that a, 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 vid, a film? Somewhat. Somewhat. You're on your way. Inspired, it inspired a short documentary. Inspired a short documentary, yeah. Um, but tell us what you what were your feelings, your thoughts as you saw the Dems, Biden, everyone telling voters in Wisconsin it was safe to vote. How does that kind of intersect with the, the work that you've done there? It is disheartening to see attempts to have people who are already vulnerable come out really just for political purposes. Obviously an election, it's political by nature, but 
we also have to think about the health outcomes of people and their lives and their well-being. And as I talked about a lot in The Color of Economic Anxiety, which was a focus on Black people in Milwaukee, which is one of the most dire places you can be as a Black person in this country, one of the, some of the most dire straits people are in. It has the highest uh, level of segregation in the country, and we know how segregation can affect lots of access to health, adequate health care, adequate education, transit, Every, almost everything you can think of in your lived environment. It has the highest black male joblessness rate for black men in their, for men in their prime working year. And so when you see that this community has already been beat down for decades with the industrialization and then uh, partisan politics from Republicans to corporate Democrats have affected their lives there, it is just a long line of politicians not really caring enough about the most vulnerable in this country. Yeah. Um, I mean, you, it's interesting because you're also a lawyer. Um, and how, is this not a voting rights issue and a uh, discrimination issue? I mean, aren't people who have health issues disproportionately affected by um, by having an election during a pandemic? That's the, That would be a new one for me. Unfortunately, I'm not that type of lawyer where I know, you know, ADA issues or... Um, yeah. 14th Amendment <laughs> to where I would feel comfortable making any assertions about it. But even if it is legally okay, and I'm assuming that lawyers have looked into this from the campaigns and, and, and it went to court. So right. there, there, uh, they attempted to have an injunction and the judge didn't allow it. So, you know, even if there are legal reasons why it's still permissible, ethically, morally, it is awful. It's awful for our democracy. It's, it's awful for the folks who were in lines for hours, potentially, you know, taking, I, I hate to be so uh, morose, but maybe taking some of their last breaths because this is kind of going through um, these black communities and alarming rates. Right. Yeah. It's um. Why and do, have you looked into why it's higher among Black communities? Can you talk about that? Or I don't want to put you on the spot because I don't know if you've actually. I think that is going to take some academic research yeah. to understand because I think we we know the general threads though. It's some of what I mentioned before in terms of having less access to adequate health care. Um, through segregation. So a city, I mean, it's happening in a lot of these Midwestern cities. There's Chicago, there's Detroit. Uh, we think about Flint and in um, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So a lot of these cities have sort of similar infrastructure when it comes to the rates at which black people have been shut out of neighborhoods that have adequate health care, that have adequate housing, um, more environmental justice issues. So these underlying conditions of, you know, racism and racist planning and racist policy ends up having health outcomes as well. And so there's all types of studies and data about that. And it doesn't take, you know, too far of a, of a thread to consider how that can be um, kind of amplified in a pandemic. And um, what do you think about uh, Bernie dropping out? What are your thoughts? I think most of us, you know, knew that it was going to be a narrow path to victory, just probably right 
after the consolidation with Super Tuesday. So um, it's not a surprise. I think it is going to be uh, a big challenge for progressives, for socialists, to determine how we can keep these issues, you know, at the forefront of, of the of the party because they know that they or to them they don't need the progressives they don't need the progressive wing of the democratic pri uh, primary at least hillary clinton had to pretend and so she had to incorporate these things right. <laughs> into you know the dnc had to incorporate these issues into the platform um it's hard to tell whether or not you know as as much as we might might appreciate moral victories not being able to have someone to champion those issues is going to make you know, the next few years, uh, a challenge. Yeah. I don't even know. Do you think Biden can, I mean, who knows, but do you, I don't, I feel like he's not going to last till the convention. I mean, I just, I mean, like, I just think he'll, he'll, he'll reveal himself to be very inarticulate or something. I mean, he was, he was amazingly articulate at that last debate, which surprised me, but every, I mean, for him, like he didn't have any, as, as Chris Cuomo said a couple of debates earlier before that, Something like um, Biden, that was his best debate yet. Uh, he was alert the entire time. I mean, I'm not kidding. He actually said that. Um, I, I mean, I just feel like he's not going to be able, he's not going to be the nominee. But of course, they're going to draft someone awful. Um, but assuming he is the nominee, do you think he'll beat Trump? I mean, who knows? You can't predict, but. Yeah, really, any, I, I really do feel anything could happen. I think we're just in a completely different universe right now with the coronavirus. And Donald Trump is just so incompetent at his job. He has put so many lives in danger that the moderate wing, the moderate, you know, collusion right. <laughs> um, right. will probably be pretty fervent over the next several months. Yeah. So I think it's I think it's totally possible that he could win. None of us know. I mean, I will say that. The data is not helpful for him, but it wasn't helpful for him before Super Tuesday either. Right, right. But, you know, in terms of the people who really support Joe Biden, it's a lower percentage than those who supported Hillary Clinton. Like there was a Washington uh, ABC News poll, Washington Post ABC News poll that came out that showed that the people who really support, you know, they're in the category of, of highly support a candidate. I'm kind like of enthusiasm. Yeah, in terms of their enthusiasm, he had a lower rate than Donald Trump and a lower rate than Hillary Clinton did at the same point. Yeah. He also has a higher margin between him and Donald Trump than Hillary Clinton did at this point. But again, anything ha can happen. This, yeah. Who knew we would be dealing with, you know, stay at home orders right. and a global pandemic. So, yeah, possible. I'm telling Bernie should just threaten to run third party. He'll never do that. He should he should run third party or threaten and say, give me the nomination or I'll run third party. He'll never do that though. I'll pretend I'm Bernie. I'll tell him. He seems to be more of a, a party of a player than, you know, um like he's willing to to play ball with the democratic establishment more so than the establishment would give him credit for. For various reasons and kind of did the same thing when he endorsed Hillary Clinton right. in 2016. Yeah. Um, 
And so all, I mean, it's, it's a little absurd, the extent of fear mongering that we got about how Trump like he was when it's nothing, nothing like that. <laughs> he aligns with them, you know, frequently enough. Oh yeah. Well, how Trump like he was. Yeah. How Trumpian. Yeah. Any final words, any takeaways about uh, Bernie dropping out about a bunch of people, especially black low income people being forced to choose between their life and voting? We're going to have to take this fight to the streets. That is, you know, and that's even whether Bernie was president or not. Right. Local organizations, grassroots organizations are still going to have to fight. They're going to have to fight whether it's a Democrat in office or a Republican office. Yeah. And we know that because both Democrats and Republicans have abandoned working class people for decades. And whoever it is, they should be taken to task. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Malika Jabali, um, find her on Twitter at... Should I spell it out? Yeah. Malika Jabali, M-A-L-A-I-K-A, J-A-B is a boy, A-L-I. And find her writing, uh, yeah, and we'll see you soon. Wonderful. Right. Great, thank you. Later. All right, thanks. Bye, girl. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to The Katie Helper Show. See you next week. Rain review us on iTunes. Support the show at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. The Katie Helper Show is produced by Joshua Bregman, edited by Ted Reedy, and the theme song is by the band Cordova.